0: Hey, Kingdom Roots listeners, thanks for joining us this week. Before we jumped into the episode, I wanted to let you know it's going to be a little different this week because it's not a conversation between Scott and I or one of his friends or even a sermon that Scott did. It's a follow-up sermon from the sermon that we posted last week on the episode where Scott kicked off a sermon series at his church, Church of the Redeemer, on the Book of Romans. So this message is by the Reverend Amanda Holm-Rosengren and she's one of the assistant pastors at Church of the Redeemer. And Scott wanted to make sure that you listeners had a chance to hear her really incredible message. She does an incredible job of summing up all of Romans 9 through 11. And I got to say, she does it beautifully. That's no small task, but she does it in such a way that she really sums up the new perspective well in her angle that she takes in explaining this. So um, Scott really wanted you to to grasp this and thought this would be helpful as you um, really wrestle with this very important book of Romans. So as I said, this has a a lot of the backdrop of the new perspective. And um, if you haven't listened to the episode that Scott and I did on 30 minutes to everything that you need to know about the new perspective. I'll include a link in the show notes to that, as well as if you'd like to follow along with Scott's church as they go through this sermon series about the book of Romans, um, such an incredible top important topic that I'll include a link in the show notes as well to where you can access his church's podcast and follow along with their series. So without further ado, hope you enjoy this sermon by Amanda. Welcome to the Kingdom Roots podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have a sermon by the Reverend Amanda Holm Rosengren on God's story in Romans.
1: Stories have power. They speak to us about who we are, where we've been, and where we're going. They give us a sense of identity and purpose and meaning or lack thereof. They shape the way we see the world. Each of us have our own stories we tell ourselves or tell about ourselves, some that build us up, some that tear us down or hold us back. And each of us also live as part of larger stories, stories told by our culture, by our nation, by our families, by our churches. And those larger stories can prove also very powerful for good or for ill. In fact, many of the terrible conflicts and violence in history have been fueled by particular stories. People don't just usually wake up and say, "Think I'll commit a genocide today, right? It doesn't just come from nowhere. There's usually a story behind it that makes it feel logical and justified. For example, in South Africa, the system of apartheid that arose... Um, was largely a result of a theological story formed at a seminary in the 30s and 40s. And the story ran like this. We offer Connors, our God's chosen people, superior to other races. So we must create a system that keeps them from us so they can be civilized, but we can remain pure. That's a very theological story, but it's a story nonetheless. A story that creates an us and a them that justifies violence and crimes against the them. Stories have power. Thankfully, most of our stories don't have that kind of destructive power. And yet the stories we tell can create division, even violence, or they can create welcome and peace. As Harold C. Goddard puts it, the destiny of the world is determined less by the battles that are lost and won than by the stories it loves and believes in. We've been spending time the past few weeks in the church at Rome, reading Romans backwards. That is, starting at the end of the book to see how the end sheds light on the meaning of the letter as a whole. And what we've had to remember that this is a letter, Romans is a letter, probably performed and interpreted by Phoebe. She must've been really tired when she was done, by the way. This is a letter directed to a community in which it seems that there were two groups of believers who were at odds with one another. The so-called weak believers were probably mainly Jewish, had returned to Rome after being kicked out by the previous emperor, suddenly find that the community of faith feels really Gentile. The group Paul calls the strong, were primarily Gentile believers, had higher status in Roman society than the weak. And these groups were having trouble living at peace with one another, trouble recognizing and welcoming one another as brothers and sisters. They were having trouble in how they practiced faith together. Last week, Canon J looked at the practices Paul recommends for them for living in peace together. And this week, we learned that their divisions were rooted not just in theology or the nitty-gritty of practice, but in the very stories that they were telling and living out. So in the section we're tackling this week, Romans 9 through 11, Paul corrects these competing stories, and he tells a different story. A story that weaves the weak and the strong together as brother and sister in the plan of God, creating space for them to welcome one another and live as a community of peace in the heart of empire. So yes, you heard me. Three chapters of Romans today. I'm going to go verse by verse. So prepare. Just, just kidding. Uh, I didn't have Ethan read all of that for you because that, you know, I did look at all of it. So we are going to cover all of it. In so, to some extent. I do hope you have a Bible with you or are really quick on your phones, okay? Uh, these are not just three chapters. They're three hotly contested chapters. Much ink has been spilled in the commentaries on these, on these chapters. I pulled out one commentary to, to try to just read through it, what it said, and then I saw that about these sections, there's almost 200 pages of material just on these three chapters, and I did not have time for that, I'll tell you. So there's all sorts of thorny questions. I'm sure I will not answer all of your questions today. We're going to take, I think, uh, Dr. Dana Harris's analogy is a flyover from 20,000 feet over these chapters. But Paul wanted the group to get a big picture of their story in these chapters. That's kind of what we're going to do too. So what were the competing stories embraced by the weak and the strong? And what story does Paul weave for them instead? We're going to start with the weak They might have described their story, we are Jews who believe in Jesus Messiah. We're the chosen people of the covenant with privileged status before God that the rest of you Gentiles don't have. Good believers look Jewish like us and follow Torah. Bad believers look like you and ditch Torah. Now you've got to empathize with these believers because they have centuries and centuries of story behind them. They thought they knew their story really well. Stories of how Israel under the covenant was supposed to be unique and set apart, but kept looking too much like the nations, that is, like the Gentiles. Stories of how God punished Israel because they looked too much like the nations. Stories of how in exile they clung to things like circumcision and Sabbath and food laws to avoid looking like the nations. And now the new community looks like what? Like the nations. You say, hey, this is okay now, guys, come on in. No, no wonder they were confused. That was their identity. That was how they had practiced faith. That's what they thought faithfulness and holiness looked like. So as Phoebe dove into reading Romans and read the first chapters, which we're reading backwards, so we haven't got there yet, uh, but Paul keeps breaking down these boundaries between Jew and Gentile. They must have gotten even more confused about the story they thought they knew. Were they not the chosen privileged people anymore? Had God changed his mind about them being the covenant people? Dare they ask? Was God unfaithful? Paul's response to the weak is, actually, you've misunderstood the story. You're not telling it the way it actually is. Let me retell it for you as I've had to relearn it for myself. So in all of chapter 9 and 10, in the first part of chapter 11, that's what Paul is doing. He's talking to the weak, talking to those who knew the Jewish story or thought they did, correcting how they understand their story. So we're going to look at four of those corrections. I've tried to go loosely in verse order, but Paul does a lot of weaving. It's really a, a woven, woven thing, not a topic by topic. So take it like that. Uh, speaking of misunderstandings, I want to say two things at the very beginning of our walk through these passages. I imagine most of you have read them and heard about them. And Anyway, these are not chapters dealing with individual salvation. And if you look at it that way, at best you're going to be confused. At worst, you're going to stray into serious theological error. Okay, so try to put individual salvation, it's hard to do. Try to put it off to the side. The language of election in these sections is about who God chooses to use in order to carry forward his promises. Again, not so much about my salvation or predestination as we think about it, but about mission. And Jefferson actually talked about election in that way this morning. Thank you, Jefferson. So now that you're all confused, here we go. Paul's first correction of the story the week has been telling is this. Yes, you are the beloved people of the covenant. But God's choice of you has always about, been about his promise, not your privilege. Paul affirms Israel's special place in redemption in the first verses of chapter 9. He says, yes, all of this belongs to you. The covenant and the temple and the law are all your special legacy. Those were good things. Those are good things. But it has always been bigger than you. It has been about God fulfilling his promises to Abraham through you. And that's never just been about genetics. Story of Abraham, Abraham has two sons, but only Isaac was chosen for the promise, not Ishmael. God's choice has also, Paul says, never been about merit or effort. God chooses Jacob, not Esau, in the womb. They hadn't done anything yet. They were still inside. Catherine's not in here. It had neither. It had nothing to do with the character of either of them. God chooses who he chooses to accomplish his mission. And the same thing applies to the nation of Israel as a whole. It wasn't anything about them. It was grace alone. It was for the purposes of God loving them and fulfilling his promises through them. So throughout this story, Paul says, God zigs and zags. He makes surprising choices. It's never who you think it's going to be. It's never the logical successor to the throne, so to speak. So Paul says, no, you've misunderstood how God works in history. Yes, you are his beloved people. But you don't have any right to a status that stands separate from God's mercy and grace. It was never just about you. It was also about God's mission. God has always been zigging and zagging to fulfill his promises. And that's a sign of God's faithfulness, not of his failure. So Paul's second correction to the week, the story they've been telling, God always intended to bring the Gentiles into his family. That's the gist of these questions Paul pounds away at and all the quotes from the prophets that he draws in in the second half of chapter 9, pounding away on the theme of God's zigs and zags and saying, what if God didn't give you all these rich blessings just for you, but also for all whom God has called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? He looks back at the prophets and say, it's there, guys. They support it. They predict it. From Isaiah to Hosea, to the words of Joel that Paul quotes in 10.13, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul knows his Bible. He's had to look at it in a new way. Now he knows it better even. And he's done his homework. He knows that the promise to Abraham was that all nations would be blessed through his seed. And he now sees that part of Israel's role as chosen as elected by God, was to be that vessel of mercy to all the nations. It was never just about you, he says. It was also about the nations. So when you thought that what you needed to do was just be separate from them, that was the end goal, no, it was to bring them in. So you weak, Paul says, this was always part of the plan. A surprising zigzag in God's work of fulfilling his promises, but a sign of God's faithfulness, not of his failure. Paul's third correction to the story of the week. Torah was never the point. Jesus, Messiah, was the point. This is what Paul gets into in the first part of this section that we have in in, um, chapter 10. It backs up a little bit. Again, you can Okay, so the part about Torah is the hardest part for me to understand. Maybe you're not like me. Maybe you are. This is where it gets a little dense. We're diving in. You can hear the week Wrestling. How is it that all these sinners who didn't even try to live holy lives, like they weren't trying to get into the kingdom here, they've made it in? Well, all of the Jewish people who were zealous in their pursuit of righteousness, who, you know, think about how hard they worked at it. They seem to have totally missed out. How did that happen? But Paul says, the people of Israel got it wrong. They misunderstood their story. They looked to the works of the law as the holy way, the thing that set them apart as those who had right standing, that is righteousness with God. They missed the Messiah. They missed that the law, the Torah, was pointing to the Messiah all along, that the Messiah was actually the ultimate fulfillment of the law. The Messiah was the truly elect, the one who lived out God's righteousness the way Israel never could, that the Messiah was the fulfillment of all God's promises to them. They stumbled in that race. We see an example of how even pious Israelites stumbled over Jesus in our gospel reading for today. The man who runs up to Jesus and is so sure he's kept all the commandments faithfully, the way he was supposed to do. But when Jesus says, give up everything, give to the poor, and follow me, he can't do it. In the words of Jesus, many who are first will be last, and the last first. See, what Paul calls the righteousness that is by the law had been Israel's response in exile. Again, they they thought that their history was, don't be like the nations, don't be like the nations. So they're feeling like, we're not going to be like the nations. They were seeking to be faithful to God, to seek right standing with God by living as faithful Jews and not as Gentiles, following Torah, food laws, circumcision, Sabbath. It was a very ethnically specific way. You had to be Jewish to be part of the people of God. That's how they saw it. But Paul writes that the righteousness that is by faith, the righteousness God intended for his people to have through the covenant, the righteousness available through Jesus Messiah is instead for everybody, not just those who become Jewish. Rather than the works of the law being what God requires, instead, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's as if for the week there was this narrow path they have been walking in order to get through a mountain and out the other side. But once they get to the other side, they see the vast plains and the huge vista. They want to insist on everyone walking single file still, with <laughs> their heads down. Even the people that kind of went around the mountain and showed up. That's not the point. In Jesus, there is not only one path, and it means being Jewish. But instead, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. God's ultimate intention was not for a sharp distinction between Jew and nations based on Torah and works of the law, but for both to become one family through faith in Jesus Messiah. So, Paul says, for the weak, it made no sense for them to continue insisting on Torah as the path of holiness and righteousness. It made no sense for them to look down on the strong, or insist that they keep kosher and be circumcised as the way to be holy, because Torah was never the point. Jesus Messiah was the point. The way God intended to fulfill his promises to both Israel and the nations. It was a surprising zigzag in God's work to fulfill his promises, but it was a sign of his faithfulness and not of his failure. So Paul's last correction to the weak, and it's a word of comfort, he probably needed it, God has always shown his mercy and his grace by preserving a remnant. We get to that in the last part of chapter 10 and the beginning of chapter 11. Again, they're asking, why are there so few of us? Has God rejected us? Maybe they're asking, did we not keep the law well enough? Again, understandable questions for those who are disoriented by the, the Gentile believers next to them. Well, Paul says first, no, God hasn't rejected you. Look at me. I'm as Israelite as you can get, and here I am. And Paul invokes the story of Elijah, which we read as our Old Testament passage today. Elijah's despondency. Lord, where have you gone? I thought I was being faithful. And God says, hey, look, you're not the only one. There's another. Actually, a lot of others. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. We are here, Paul says. We're the remnant. We're here by God's mercy and grace. Israel has always disobeyed. That's our story. But God in his mercy has zigged and zagged and always preserved a remnant of faithful people. And he has here too. That is not a sign of God's failure, but of God's faithfulness to us. So the weak needed to relearn their story as a story which is not about their privileged status, but of God's mercy and faithfulness a story in which the way God zigs and zags are par for the course and actually the very way he's faithful to his promises, despite and even through people's disobedience. So they need to reorient themselves in relationship to faith in Jesus rather than in faith in the works of the law as the thing that makes a good believer. And above all, they need to recognize that the Gentiles were always supposed to become their brothers and sisters through Christ people who are on equal footing with them before God. Only then can their story be a story of welcome and of peace, and not a story of division. So then, what about the strong? Paul turns to them next, and you'll be glad to hear he talks to them a lot less, uh, but in harsher terms. The story the strong seems to have been telling is basically it's our turn now, nobody needs Torah, Israel is irrelevant, and you weak are the bad believers, and we're the good believers. It's likely the strong weren't even all that familiar with the story Paul's been telling so far in these chapters. It's, it's kind of Paul at his most Jewish. He's drawing in events, he's drawing on people, he's asking questions. But those weren't the stories that the weak, or the strong, excuse me, the Gentiles grew up with. They probably heard about the Greek and Roman heroes, gods, the emperors, the builders of Rome. You can imagine them thinking about the weak. How irrelevant. How provincial. We need to educate them so that they know better. And of course, they need to ditch Torah like us. Well, Paul actually agrees with the strong that they don't need to follow Torah, but they too needed to learn a new story. So when Paul turns to the strong in the second half of eleven chapter 11. He says, the Jewish people irrelevant? Hardly. They're the native plant. You're the wild branches that have been grafted in miraculously, because in nature it only works the way around. It could only be a miracle. And yes, some of them, some of the Jewish people, have been broken off from the tree because of their unbelief, but you are not at all superior. In fact, you're just receiving the nourishment of the main tree, just like them. You're a recipient of God's mercy, just like the weak. You are equals, brothers and sisters. And you know what? Their hardening is not the end of the story. Those branches that were locked off have made room for you to be grafted onto this tree. Their disobedience made space for God's mercy and kindness to you. And now your presence on this tree is not just for you. It will be how God works to show mercy to them again. Paul even goes so far to say that the Gentiles being grafted into God's family will make Israel jealous or envious and get them to come back in. Sort of like if you've stormed out of your own party, and you look in and see that your rival is having a really great time in there, but you're missing out. The only one who loses if you stay out is you. Sometimes that's enough to get you to come back in and have fun again. And that is Paul's hope for Israel that they will rejoin their own party when they see that the Gentiles are in now too, and it's a pretty good time. So Paul says to the strong in no uncertain terms, do not be arrogant, but tremble. They were cut off because of unbelief. Don't you have that happen to you too? You have no reason to be conceited or think you are better than them. You were disobedient at one time, now you've received mercy. They're disobedient now. Now they have a chance to receive mercy through you. It all comes back to God's mercy and faithfulness. That's the true story. So it's not the case that there was Israel back then, and now there's the church, at least in Paul's view. Instead, there was Israel, and now there is expanded Israel. I think that was Scott's turn. Thank you, Scott. It's a family of faith that goes beyond ethnicity goes beyond social and religious boundaries, a family of faith in which the Gentiles are full and equal siblings with the Jewish people, and vice versa. Siblings, not step-siblings. There is one tree, one people of God, not dispensations, not replacements, one expanded Israel that exists not through flesh or privilege or merit or Torah or not Torah, but through God's mercy and grace, just as it always did. Paul still holds out great hope for the Israel according to the flesh, but only if they, too, come back through faith in Jesus Messiah. There's still just one path, but there's hope. Paul's bottom line for the strong is, yeah, when it comes down to it, I side with you all in terms of how I view Torah, but you've got to remember that this is now your story. You are part of Israel now. You're not your own thing. These weak that you've been picking on, they're part of you. There aren't good guys and bad guys here. There's not good believers and bad believers. You've all been disobedient, and you're all here because of God's mercy and faithfulness. Them as well as you. This, Paul says, is the story that brings welcome, that enables them to welcome one another, that brings peace in their community and peace in the heart of the empire. So where does that leave us. I think in my notes I have weak, strong, us. Because this, this discussion can feel really far removed, right? That Jew-Gentile is not our primary debate in the church. Most of us here are Gentiles, right? And honestly, most of the chapters that we've been discussing here address the weak, mostly Jewish concerns. So how is that relevant to us? Well, first, These chapters matter because Israel's story is now our story too. It's our story too. We're those wild branches that were grafted in by God's mercy. It matters that we know the Old Testament, that we pay attention to things like the Jewish background of the Gospels and why it was such a big deal that the Gentiles joined the church. It's our story too. There was controversy in Christian circles or, you know, certain Christian circles this week, not this week, earlier this year, when Andy Stanley, pastor at mega Church in Atlanta, preached a sermon in which he asserted that Peter, James, Paul elected to unhitch the Christian faith from their Jewish scriptures, and my friends, we must as well. Now there's a debate about what exactly he meant, so I'll invite you to go and look at that in context, right? But just taking that one statement at face value, we have to say, no. Paul's whole point in these passages from Romans is that The scriptures themselves support Jesus, support the New Testament, that you can't understand the whole story without understanding the story of the Jewish people and the Jewish Messiah who opened up the community of faith to include non-Jews. That's most of us. It is arrogance to make ourselves the center of the story. Jesus is the center of the story, and we are the ones who've been added on. And along with that, I hate that I feel like I have to say it, there's absolutely no room for Christian anti Semitism. We repent of that and we name it as evil. These passages have been used for terrible purposes in history. Never again. Paul writes that Israel is still beloved because of the covenant. And he continues to long to see them rejoin the family, the family of true Israel. And we should too. Even while we, like Paul, unapologetically hold out Jesus Messiah as the only source of right standing with God. So Israel's story is our story too. Second, we can take comfort in God's faithfulness, even through the zigs and the zags. Some of you are like, that's how my life feels, zigs and zags. I don't know what's coming. God is always working, even when it's just through a remnant. God is working his purposes out, even in the ways we don't expect, through the people we don't expect. God will remain faithful even when all humanity proves faithless. Third and last, what stories are we telling? Are we telling stories that lead to peace or stories that enhance division? I was struck this week by an article, I think it was actually a blog post, that I imagine some of you saw as well. It was kind of making its rounds on Facebook. And it began with, I mean, the article was good, but the most compelling thing was the picture. It began with this picture from a few years ago, from the Ukraine. Picture of a Ukrainian Orthodox priest out in the, sto- in the snow, wearing a stole, holding up his hands, and clutching a cross in one hand. Standing in between a group of anti-Russian protesters and a group of pro-Russian paramilitary police whose guns were drawn. Look at this. It's a powerful picture. And the article points out that the Ukrainian Orthodox Church is not politically neutral. They have an opinion about what's going on, and in fact they're at odds with the Russian Orthodox Church about Russia's role in the Ukraine. So it's likely that no one you see in the picture, priest, the two groups, no one there is politically neutral. So what is it that led this priest to stand in the middle of the violence, holding up the cross, rather than blessing one side or the other? See, the groups in those pictures are living out different stories. Two that invite division, and one that invites peace. Where are we in that picture? Are we telling stories that make us the good guys and someone else the bad guys? maybe even the good Christians and the bad Christians. Those are the stories that divide. But the stories that bring peace are the stories that create a different category. Those who have received God's mercy. Those who are in need of God's mercy. Those are stories that welcome. And only a story like that can create a community of peace in the heart of empire. So my brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, let us be those who tell true stories. Lord, may our story here be a story that invites peace, in which we welcome one another, in which we're able to lay down our arms and greet one another as we would greet you. Holy Spirit, come. Amen.